the uh, low point personally, I uh, landed on both my kneecaps at about five feet in the air uh, in hard sand. Um, I had no cartilage. I shattered the cartilage behind my right kneecap. Um, so I spent about seven hours in the ER, and there, you know, I was like, I, I have nowhere to go. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 151, Eric Hogan from Wolfman Motorcycle Luggage talks about being in business and doing what you love to earn a living. Hey, friends of the show, I wanted to take this opportunity to thank those of you who filled out our online survey. Uh, if you haven't filled out that survey, it's in the top right-hand corner of our site at adventuresportspodcast.com. Uh, take a couple minutes and fill it out if you would, because it gives us awesome data to understand who's out there and data that we can also pass on to the sponsors to uh, to help pay for the show. And we're going to bug you guys until we're blue in the face or until the date has come and gone. But we were doing our Colorado listeners meetup April 22nd. It's a Friday. We're going to be doing that in Louisville, Colorado at Mud Rocks Tap and Tavern. So once again, go to the top right hand corner of adventuresportspodcast.com and find that button. That's where you can find your ticket. It's only $10. It gets you a raffle ticket, your first drink, and a night with Pete Schuster learning about the Continental Divide Trail. So come join us. We're going to have a lot of fun. Welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Travis. Today on the line with me is Eric Hogan from Wolfman Luggage. Wolfman Luggage does motorcycle luggage. They're an American company with American-made products. And we're going to have a little bit of a, a twist on our regular episodes. And this is going to be another one of the Adventure Entrepreneur uh, shows. So I want to talk to Eric a little bit about what it's like to, uh, to work doing something you, you truly love. So first of all, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Travis. Uh, excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Well, I've been meaning to to catch up with you. I mean, we're we're almost neighbors. Wolfman Luggage yeah. is out of Longmont, Colorado, and I live in Longmont, Colorado, and been enjoying your products for for years now. So I'm glad to have you on the show. We're good. Thank you for the support. Excellent. Um, happy to be here. So, you know, ask any questions. I'll be I'll be glad to answer anything I can. All right. Well. We will do that. So we always like to start off with a little bit of background on our, our guest. So take a little bit of time and, and fill us in. Uh, who is Eric Hogan? I guess I'll go back to the beginning. I grew up over, uh, I've spent a large part of my life overseas in Latin America. Um, I, uh, I was born in El Salvador, actually a month premature, in my parents' bedroom. My dad delivered me. He was uh, Peace Corps staff at the time. Um, they had lived in Bolivia. They were the first crew to go to Bolivia in uh, 1965, actually a little before then, 64. Uh, um, he grew up overseas in Venezuela. His dad was a uh, geologist for Creole oil. They did all the, a lot of the exploration for Hugo Chavez. And, um, so I speak fluent Spanish, or as fluent as I can get. Um, we've lived, we lived in the States for a little bit, um, 
and then in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, we moved overseas to the Dominican Republic and then to Bolivia again. He was then with the uh, State Department. And then uh, I, I kind of, uh, I, they were moving back to the Dominican Republic in uh, 1984, 80, yeah, 84. And uh, I went off to pri- private boarding school in New Hampshire. And then uh, did not like it there. Um, I was not a great student. I was a good kid, not a great student. I uh, did uh, five years of high school. I had to repeat my junior year. And then uh, my senior year was done at a uh, school called the Colorado Rocky Mountain School in Carbondale, Colorado. And then how did I, I guess we'll flip a little bit into how did I get into this? I've always been, as my dad called it, and I was talking to some of my uh, staff today, that I've been a chitty, chitty, bang, bang kind of guy (laughs) with my hands, always fixing stuff, building stuff, fixing my bike. Um, I even went so far one time in uh, Bolivia, I had an old Schwinn Stingray and I wanted to do something different to the bike and it had a bladed fork. So it was a most probably mildish steel or mild tensile. Well, I built a fire in our backyard barbecue, got it nice and hot, took that fork, stuck it in, got it nice and hot, and proceeded to beat it straight <laughs> on the cement. And so it went from kind of a bent fork to a nice bladed straight fork and filed it, cleaned it, got the uh, the uh, the wheel slots and everything pretty true and everything like that. So I, I, I've been involved with that for a while. Um, how did I get interested in motorcycling? Um, I was a, a child in the mid-70s. I was living in the States. And... Uh, one of the guys on on our block uh, rode motorcycles, motocross, actually. He started out on an XR75 four-speed. So that was about a 72, 74 era bike. And then uh, progressed into a Honda CR125 Elsinore, one of the black and silver and green ones. Uh, Elsinore, That was yeah. like the bike of the time. Right. And, to go, and, and he, he had leather pants, leather motocross pants, um, we lived on a dead end, so there was a uh, a vacant lot back there, and they used to there was kind of a track, and so we'd go out and watch them ride once in a while, and so on. So that was really cool. And uh, when we moved from there to the Dominican Republic in nineteen in late seventy seven, we got two. My brother and I got two Honda Z fifties, and that was the start of it. Uh, <laughs> I think most of us have started out on that little bike. <laughs> yeah, and uh, what really started this adventure lifestyle or this adventure motorcycling thing, the bikes had been around, but really what kicked it off, I think if you looked at history, you know, kind of those milestones for, for industry or people was, you know, Charlie and Ewan's trip around the world, uh, long way around. That really kind of started this bug, if you will. But So for me, um, I can't remember the year. I'd have to go, you'd have to look back in the AMA and so on, or actually just call the two guys and ask them if they remember. Um, one of the biggest highlights for me getting into, you know, I didn't know I was going to get a motorcycle later in life, but or later, when I mean, we're talking like two years, um, had an opportunity uh, when we lived in Louisiana to go to the Superdome and watch the Supercross. And I watched Marty Smith beat Bob Hanna on the 250 class. 
that was that was the highlight. I remember watching uh, uh, Wide World of Sports. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember ABC. Yeah, it was ABC's Wide World of Sports. They did a whole expose on uh, Marty Smith and how he's kind of the California kid and where he came from. And that was just so cool. And so to watch him win was that was just awesome. And uh, from then on, it was just been an, uh, a uh, um, a love affair with motorcycling. I remember looking at a popular mechanics and seeing an R80 GS in there and uh, kind of thinking, wow, that was pretty cool. What is BMW doing and stuff like that? But uh, kind of spent a lot of time in the outdoor industry or outdoor fields. Um, I was uh, doing a lot of climbing, mountain climbing, rock climbing, that kind of thing. Spent a semester in Alaska with an outfit called Knowles National Outdoor Leadership School. Throughout college, I did a lot of rock climbing my first semester. Spent a lot of time on rock, not a lot of time in class. Um, didn't quite know what I wanted to do. And then um, I met some uh, someone who did a lot of sewing repairs for um, one of the uh, outdoor shops. She started to explain her, what her degree is in. And so I went to investigate that. And so... I, I, I have a degree in apparel production. I studied the processes of manufacturing clothing, how to design it, how to make patterns, how to cost it, how to manufacture it, how to sell it, um, the whole nine yards. Um, and uh, But I didn't like to make clothes. Um, I was making backpacks and fanny packs and all kinds of stuff at the time. Um, which was really difficult for the teachers to grade, which was kind of interesting. But I didn't want to make clothes, and they said sure. And uh, but that's where I got the, this you know, this love to assemble. Now how to make stuff, and I found that sewing was the way to do it. I did an internship at a backpack and bicycle touring company called Madden Mountaineering in Boulder, Colorado. They no longer exist, but uh, their bicycle touring equipment was was spot on. It was world traveled. Um, but I had left uh, and then started Wolfman. I, uh, I started Wolfman in 1990, or went into the motorcycle industry in 1992, actually. It was in the backpack industry. I tried to make a line of backpacks, and I went nowhere. So I was like, hmm, not backpacking as much as I used to. I'm riding my motorcycle more. I actually uh, went from an N my NX650 to a R80GS BMW and uh, went to the dealer expo which was in Cincinnati at the time, it was vastly different to the point where you had to go to shows to do distribution to get your name out. It was very difficult. You had to go to rallies and whatnot. It was very difficult. Now, it is incredibly simple. The access for information, to give people information, is huge and very simple compared to what that was. Um, I started Wolfman in the uh, second bedroom, the guest bedroom of our house. I would take the mattress off the bed, which was my table. I would do my stuff and put the mattress back on at the end of the day. Well, I can completely relate to your your desire to create with anything. I I'm you know have admitted to enjoying sewing myself to the extent that I've learned how to run all kinds of lathes and mills and and uh, machinery and weld and 
But sewing is just creating just like that with a different material. And the fact that my daughter and my wife have sewing machines in the house is very helpful because I can jump on those and repair some piece of motorcycle equipment or sew a zipper onto it. I've, I've made little chin skirts for a dual sport helmet to keep the wind out of there. And it's just a, it's another way to create and tinker with just another material. So I totally get your, your desire to do that and to create this motorcycle luggage. Well, as uh, it was funny, I was sitting down with one of my professors, and he was a professor in the in the uh, uh, more in the the, the uh, machine side of things at uh, in the college. And uh, I said, "You know, I'm, I, I sew," and he's like, "Ah, it's just different facets of manufacturing." That's all. He had <laughs> kind of a southern playing. He was a cool dude, um, and uh, it was true. I mean, it's just a different facet of putting something together instead of nuts and bolts you're using thread and punch through and uh, assembling with a needle um so it's just something i i knew i knew how i i've been able to sew for a, quite a number of years i actually beat up my mom's sewing machine to the point where she said just leave my machine <laughs> um yeah she wasn't too happy with me um but uh i i yeah I learned from some very talented people. I'm a classically trained pattern maker. Um, I do all the pattern work. I use no CAD um, or anything like that because it's a. You can draw a picture, and uh, I guess you know some of the things that I know is the business has changed. You know, we we don't manufacture like we used to, and so people draw these pictures. They give it a what, what's called a spec sheet, so and give it all the dimensions and just send it off. Let somebody else do the pattern work. Let somebody else figure out all that stuff. I don't. I do it with a see-through ruler and a number seven lead pencil. Nice. That's it. And then I have, I have L squares and uh, French curves and a compass. I'm playing with my compass today. Um, and that's it. I don't. It doesn't need to get any more complex than that. But you have to be able to visualize what. Uh, what uh, I, I have the ability to visualize what I'm making. So you sound very hands-on with your business still. I mean, you would think, I would think a lot of people 24 years into it would get to the point where they've just kind of pushed some of that, uh, the work that you do off, you know, to other people, but you must truly love what you do uh, to be down there making the patterns and being down there with everybody else. I don't, uh, I, that's my job. And it has always been to do the design work, the R and D. Uh, that's a, that's been my job, my primary, my main focus. Um, I'm not an accountant. I have an amazing uh, financial manager that works here, um, and she's way smarter than I am in certain things. But can she do pattern work? Most people don't know how to. So I was able to, I have looked at, uh, do I want to do sales? Mm, I get on the phone when I have to deal with a real tough customer most of the time. Right. Let's talk about ups and downs a little bit. Um, you know, in adventure and in business, we have both. Um, a lot of times, especially in business, you know, we think, like you've alluded to, people look at it and say, oh, I want to do what you do. You, you've made it big time and it just seems like the grass is so green. I want to do that. But there's obviously some downsides to that. So 
How about a, a business story about, uh, you know, a downtime, things that didn't go uh, right? And let's follow that up with uh, a time being out on the motorcycle. Okay. Um, a downtime in business um, must have been, actually, it was uh, just recently. It was last year. Um, I decided to make a change. I looked at Kurt, Kurt and Martha Forget, who own Black Dog Cycle Works. They have a real unique lifestyle. They've, cons- they, they've wrapped their business around their lifestyle rather than wrapping their lifestyle around their business. Right. Um, which is uh, pretty unique um, because uh, they spend half the year in Baja now. They built a house and everything. And so I'm like, man, I want to take some time off. I was getting burned out. I mean, after 25 years. Yeah, I would think so. So I looked at their business model and said, I could do that. I want to try this. So I... And I talked to, I, I went through it really wi- eyes wide open, eyes wide open. And I talked to everybody. I, I talked to them, how they do it, and really gotten down to the nitty gritty. I uh, talked to a manufacturer and uh, said, uh, you know, I was going to, I gave them basically a big chunk of our product line uh, to, to manufacture for me. Um, and they, oh yeah, we can do this. We can do this. And, uh, we even went to a fulfillment company and they would warehouse and ship the, the goods. And so then it was just an office that we were going to have. Um, so we didn't need a lot of space. So we moved out of our, we actually had about, uh, almost 12,000 square feet by the time we, we, we had a sewing facility in there with four operators, uh, full-time production manager, the whole bit. Um, and I cleaned house, fired everybody except two people. There's only two people that came that have been here since then, but I cleaned house and I was going to make it small and run things again. Oh, actually three, excuse me, three employees. We keep the seamstress on staff, um, to run, to do in-house production and then do repairs and any emergency stuff we have to deal with. Um, we moved facilities. Um, our landlord um, over-promises and under-delivers. We signed a lease January 20th last year. We were not physically in our building until mid-May. We had to leave our other building, so we actually lived with in two offices that we spent about four hours cleaning um, because nobody had cleaned these offices. Um, our stuff was somewhere else. Our, all our all our stuff, everything we owned, somewhere else in the building. We couldn't get to it. We couldn't ship retail. That was uh, manufacturing was not was not up to speed. Um, another manufacturer just couldn't. Or it was very unorganized and it was bad. Just very stressful. So some things didn't work. I mean, we, we settled this out. We, we survived. But if some things did not work for us and the way our business is run. We straightened up manufacturing. I spent a huge amount of time um, when we talk about product. I looked at all our stuff. And first of all, I looked at, I reduced what we had in inventory because we couldn't make it all. And so I had to look at what made, what makes sense for Wolfman. 
And so I had to remove quite a bit of product. If you're, the spread between one product A and product B is real close, people don't know which one to get. There's, there's kind of a confusion. Um, so last year was really kind of an interesting year. Uh, it was a struggle. It was frustrating. I mean, we didn't have product for customers. Um, we actually had to, we stopped selling to distributors overseas. Everybody became a dealer. Um, we were not making enough uh, profit um, to sell overseas. So um, a lot of lessons were learned, um, some good, some bad, but uh, that was, that was uh, kind of a, I, I, I want to say while it's going on, it's kind of a low point, but looking back at it, it's like, man, we learned a lot. And uh, my my philosophy in life is, you know, make mistakes. You're supposed to. My patterns don't always work some days, but you tried. Biggest thing is, did you learn something? Because if you didn't, then it was a moot point. Then you're, and if you didn't try it, you'll never go beyond yourself. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with a proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. Hey folks, be sure to swing by 180tac.com to check out the 180 stove and the 180 flame camp stoves. These lightweight, compact, multi-fuel stoves are made in the USA and are designed to be fail-proof on your adventure. These stoves offer the flexibility to cook your meal using twigs and sticks found around you or various other fuels like gel fuel, alcohol, charcoal, or even use them as a windbreak and stable cooking surface for remote bottle gas stoves. The ingenious locking tab and slot design ensures your stove is very solid and stable without the use of hinges, rivets, or fasteners that can fail you in the field. Visit 180tack.com to find your next camp stove. Actually, a low point. Personally, I uh, landed on both my kneecaps at about five feet in the air oh. uh, in hard sand. Um, I had no cartilage. I shattered the cartilage behind my right kneecap. Um, it was actually pretty terrifying when uh, my uh, just the event that 
I had to get out and I was in Arizona. My wife had to come get me. Some people, luckily we have a friend there where I could park my rig. I had to be taken to the hospital. Here's one of those things that, you know, if you, you wonder how many people, having lived through this, you wonder how many people would be able to put up with this. So I spent about seven hours in the ER and there, you know, I was like, I, I have nowhere to go. My wife was flying in that evening. She got a hotel. And uh, I'm like, well, you're, you're, it's time for you to, you know, to check out. And I had to call my own cab. They didn't do it. I'm in a wheelchair. And then the nurse takes me out, outside the emergency exit and so on, where, where people would get picked up. Parks me on the sidewalk and says, have a nice day and walk away. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Everything else was on me. I had to shuffle into, I could barely walk. I had, to, I had crutches and a bag full of crap. I was able to go to my vehicle and at least get a like, pair of underwear, just something, you know, stuff I can take a shower. I hadn't bathed in a few days. Um, I was at a motorcycle event and uh, kind of somehow got my butt in the uh, taxi. Taxi got me to the hotel, got out of the hotel. The lady was booked up at the uh, uh, front desk and no one was available. I had to walk, I think by the time I was all said and done, through the elevators to the room for about 150 yards, barely walk, with crutches and bag full of crap in my hands, like knee braces and just, you know, like about the size, not quite as big as a hefty bag, but it sure felt like it that oh, day. Wow. And uh, finally got in the hotel room, just got on the bed, got situated, and I just fell asleep. My wife came in, and the next day we spent one more night in uh, Phoenix and Flew home, got uh, to see my orthopedist. He's like, oh, boy, this is not good, Eric. I'm like, yeah, yeah, tell me about it, and so on. And my wife and the nurse left. It was Doc and I, and it, uh, this was the thing that – then I got scared. I just um, – I got a little panicky. Um, he said, you know, let's make sure you walk again. And I was like, oh, Jesus, oh, God, oh, boy. I did everything right. Um Though I, I, the meniscus, the odd thing was, since my knees were bent when I landed, the meniscus uh, on both knees, the uh, ligaments, all are in good shape. The joint itself is in good shape. I can't, can't run downstairs, can't run anymore. I can run upstairs and walk quickly upstairs, but I can't run much. And I can't, very rarely do you see me get on my knees. Um, because of that. Yeah. It probably makes hiking difficult too. Great going up. Yeah. So but... I can't. Yeah. And so I, I, we walk a lot, my wife and I, um, just in our neighborhood, but it's not something I, I'm just like, eh. Um, so life is an adventure and it's not just in business. It's just life in general. Yep. No doubt. Well, let's talk about business and bootstrapping versus jumping in with both feet. You know, there's two ways to go about it. And it sounds to me like you you went the bootstrapping route. Um, I think a lot of people out there that, you know, are just getting into business or thinking about getting into business, they're, they're dealing with that question now. So what's your take on, on either or, you know? Well, I mean, first of all, you need to have some funding to, to start a business. I was lucky that my wife, uh, worked and supported us. Um, and I have returned the, returned the favor, if you will. 
the the other thing is, so you need some funding. You're going to have to get, at some point you're going to need money. That's uh, whatever it takes. And some people, they can you know you do you can do it in two ways. One, you can just jump into it, cut the ties and jump in. There's a lot of fear in that. So a lot of people start to ease into it. Um, you see a lot of uh, small companies in like an adventure rider where people do it as a side job. And uh, it slowly starts to gain some uh, legs, if you will, and uh, then they start to cut the apron strings from the full-time uh, guaranteed income. And uh, that usually is sometimes the safest way to go, um, and it may be the more comfortable. Or you'd start a business, get loans, you'd have to get investors and so on. Um, but then at that point, you really have to be a professional business immediately. So we've, we've heard and learned a lot about uh, Wolfman as far as the, the inner workings of the business. And I appreciate that, that since we're, we're doing this as an entrepreneurial episode. Um, but take a little time and, and give us the, the highlights. What is it Wolfman specifically does and what will people find when they visit your site or see your products in the store? I think, you know, most people know what Wolfman luggage is, but are we talking street bikes, dirt bikes, a little bit of both? We cover, um, uh, we cover motorcycling. I'll say that. Our focus is adventure and dual sport bikes and enduro bikes. So uh, when I say enduro bike, I'm thinking more of a single cylinder off a motorcycle, not a motor. Uh, yeah, I mean motocross bikes we can fit because they're they kind of have the same features. But um, from your big uh, adventure bikes, we always talked about uh, uh, big, small, big and small, big, medium and small. Uh, big bike would be your 1200 GS, 10 or a 1200. That's kind of a, considered a big bike. Uh, medium bike would be like your 650 singles, KLR, DR650. Uh, that that category, and then small bike uh, was kind of your enduro bike WR250R, and we kind of kind of threw uh, KTM 500, 525, 530, kind of in that small bike category because it's just a smaller stature motorcycle. Um, so we provide luggage for all that area. Plus, uh, we have a lot of crossover. Uh, any of our dry bags, our dry uh, expedition dry duffels will fit on any bike. Street bike, ATV, UTV, back of your pickup, be dustproof, waterproof, and so on. Um, uh, we do a small three-piece line for street called the Skyline Series. It consists of a pair of saddlebags, a, a, a duffel bag, and a tank bag. It's made out of a, uh, a sailcloth material. It's a four-layer laminate. Very expensive, and we had to have we had to buy a dye lot of it. Um, which is about a thousand yards, and so it's very expensive. Um, it's not something we promote a lot right now. Uh, uh, we're still known for our adventure product. It would be kind of funny if we went and tried to make stuff for Harley. So I ride adventure bikes. I ride dual sport. I know these things. I know. I kind of feel I have a good uh, good idea what people need and want and so on, how it all fits together. Um, we're trying to look at you know some things other than motorcycling, but things that have crossover, you know, keeping the same customer interested in the Wolfman brand. Now I've kind of gotten bigger into how do we take that customer and keep them interested because they, they, they can only buy so much motorcycle luggage. You know, 
and we make it to last. So the repeat business, um, unless they crash, burn, and, and break something, or they buy a new bike, sold the bike with the luggage on it, they'll come back, and so on. Um, so how do we, what do we do for that? And that's uh, some of the things we're working on. The started with the uh, Overland duffel, really nice uh, duffel tail trunk, but also can be used for travel. I use it as a, when I travel uh, airlines car and stuff like that. So when you go on our website, we have everything we, we sell um, on the website, rain covers, all the accessories, and we do a full line of repair parts. <clears throat> and also in the store, we offer the same services. Um, with uh, We usually have a bike that's loaded um, in our sales. Uh, Justin and Bryson and Larry can help you out, uh, get you all set up, and we sell directly out of our store also. Also, we have a local dealership, Rocky Mountain Kawasaki sells our product, and then up and down the Front Range, Revzilla, Rocky Mountain ATV, Aerostitch, and uh, all over the place. And so we specialize in adventure luggage. All right. And your site to go see all that good stuff is? www.wolfmanluggage.com. And uh, we're going to have our Wolf Store Adventure Days open house Saturday, May 7th, from 10 to 2 at 350 Terry Street. Suite 150 in Longmont, Colorado. And we're going to have uh, Wolf Store Specials, industry friends, some dealerships will be here, tour companies, uh, rental companies. We might have a swap meet. We don't know. Um, we're going to have a bunch of – we still have some old racks and just kind of old stuff we're trying to get rid of. We moved it, and I'm like, I want this out. So then we'll also offer uh, – my wife makes a mean hot dog, she found out. Everybody found out, and she was quite surprised. Like, I didn't know I could cook that well. So uh, we do hot dogs and uh, stuff like that. So it's usually a really fun time. We'll have uh, people from uh, TPA, Trail Preservation Alliance, and Cove Co. And we do a dollar uh, donation for door for we raffle off a bunch of door prizes and stuff, and all the money goes to Cove Co. And we match whatever it is dollar for dollar. I'm a big big advocate on trail preservation and so on, and uh, it's very important for me to uh, be part of that. We have our, though it's small, we try to have a little bit of a, a philanthropic enterprise within Wolfman. We're part, of, we're a corporate sponsor to the Backcountry Discovery Route, um, and we also promote and um, donate to TPA and Coveco um, because if the trails close. That business would suffer a little bit. Oh, yeah. We wouldn't have any good place to ride. And there's no better place to, to ride in the country than Colorado. We have so many awesome trails to, to get out we onto, do. so we got to fight we to do. keep them open. Oh, yeah. And uh, I also, once in a while, I'll lead a trip. I'm going to be leading the Colorado Backcountry Discovery Route for Scott Leet. He's a rental company and runs tours, so I'll be running. I did a, a Utah last year, and everybody had a really good time. So I was asked to do Colorado, so... It's going to be a little longer. I did it in three nights the first time. We motored through that one. This one's going to be a little slower. <laughs> well, good. So if you live on the Colorado Front Range, uh, what, Denver to Fort Collins, we'll say, then uh, swing on on May 7th uh, from 10 to 2 to the new Wolfman store in Longmont. And uh, visit Eric and get yourself one of those uh, great hot dogs we talk about. Maybe you win some door prizes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look forward to seeing anybody and everybody.
Hey, River Rats, you've heard nature photographer John Fielder discuss Colorado's free-flowing Yamper River on the Adventure Sports Podcast. Now get the 150 scenic and historic pictures behind the words. John's latest coffee table book guides you from its headwaters in the Flat Tops wilderness to the confluence with the Green River and Dinosaur National Monument. Visit johnfielder.com for more about the book or get your copy now at amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite independent Colorado book retailer. Once again, that book is Colorado's Yampa River, free-flowing and wild from the flat tops to the green. Don't forget to save the date for our first ever Adventure Sports Podcast listener meetup and an evening with Peter Schuster learning all about the Continental Divide Trail. Head on over to AdventureSportsPodcast.com to RSVP and claim your seat. And for you listeners outside of Colorado, don't forget, on the same night, you'll be able to watch the live stream of Peter's presentation. Stay tuned for details on how to do that. Why don't we uh, why don't we sign off with a fun story? Okay. So we've talked about busting kneecaps and the ups and downs of business. What about a good writing story that can leave us with some inspiration before we go? I got a good one. Um, so I actually um, uh, my dad was in town. He had something going on at the YMCA up in uh, uh, Estes Park. So I was, he's like, "Well, I was like, I- I'll come up." So I would ride uh, Johnny Park, uh, Pearson Park trails, and then I'd drop down into Estes and so on. Uh, Unfortunately, due to the floods, uh, Pearson Park has been closed for about two years. Johnny Park is still open. I was on a BMW Cross Challenge at the time, so I'm kind of on the flats, uh, gone through the rock garden, some of the technical sections. I'm kind of now more on just the the dirt road part of... uh, Pearson Park, heading north towards uh, Estes Park. And I, I, I see this kind of, something catches my eye, some movement off trail, um, off the road, uh, kind of in the trees a little bit. And I'm standing on the pegs, the uh, you know average uh, single-cylinder dual-sport bike's pretty tall. I mean, I'm only five, almost 5'10", five, so, but I had a foot, so I'm about close seven feet with a helmet and boots and everything on. And this full-size male moose cuts in front of the trail. Scared the crap out of me. <laughs> and you don't see moose a lot on the front range. He, I spooked him somewhere. He's running next to me. Zoom! Right across. Bike stalls. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Patrick dropped the bike. And I'm looking down the path that he had run. He had sheared off branches and some trunks up to almost two inches in diameter with that rack. And the power that he had. I had spooked him. almost peed my pants because I was like, oh, my gosh. And then a couple (laughs) – then last year – I was coming back from a ride in Silverthorne, and I was coming. I was up in the uh, there's this neat riding area around uh, between Fraser, 
Kremling, no, Fraser Hot Sulphur Springs, and, uh, oh, what's the pass? What's the pass? Uh, but in that area, kind of the Granby area, um, I'm riding along, da 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 I know my own business, just kind of cruising my head, just kind of in the moment. I'm trotting with a moose for about a half a mile because it's too steep for him to run down. He's kind of freaked out. I'm a little freaked out. I slow down. He speeds up a little bit and finally kind of saw his break. I chopped the throttle, and he just kind of ran away. So, yeah, it was the two coolest things was to ride with a moose. You don't see those that often. No, that is pretty cool. I've I've come across elk, and they are mighty big when you're on a motorcycle, but a moose. Moose, um, that's the yeah, largest I mean, uh, horse animal in in the world. I mean, out there, like, seven feet at the shoulder. Yeah, yeah. So, I've ridden by them at distance, you know. They've been off the side of a highway maybe, oh, I don't know, 30, 30 yards off. Um, but yeah. you get that close to a moose, and that thing is towering over you. Yeah, sure. you're just like, whoa, what was that? I'm like, oh, my God. It's just kind of cool because <laughs> they're so... Uh, they're not that prevalent. Uh, you get them more in Walden in kind of that little uh, area, but not right. not much like on the front range. That's really odd. Yeah. Um, so yeah. those were those were cool experiences. Um, I mean, it just the the stuff that motorcycle brings, what motorcycling brings. You know, it brings you camaraderie, and some of the best people I've ever met have all been on motorcycle, and. Uh, um, you know, it's just, it's a freedom that we all know about. Uh, you kind of get lost in yourself because it, it is, even though you're riding with a group, you're still riding your own ride. And, uh, you know, if you drop the bike, well, you drop the bike. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's such a rewarding, uh, experience. And it's yeah. Just, I you know, can't agree any more than that. It, uh, um, Though, uh, I must say, the one one area I don't know if I would enjoy riding is, like, traffic and lane splitting in L.A. and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't look too much fun. And I don't yeah, think Yeah, that's not is. the adventure we're out for. Yeah, I don't... <laughs> I, I mean, it, I remember, though, in... Uh, I, I'll tell you another story. This was funny. This was one of the best stories. So, back in... Uh, when I started Wolfman in the early 90s, my wife worked... Uh, for a company that made, uh, it was they used Guatemalan fabric to make like um, MC Hammer pants. It was kind of the dead were still in full force, hacky sacks, little wallets, and all this stuff. And so she uh, did a lot of design work for. Did the, she was the designer and product developer for them? So we went down to Guatemala to a small town on Lake Atitlan, which is an old volcano. And uh, uh, that's where their head office and one of her bosses lived. There were three, I think three partners. Two of them were in Boulder. One was in uh, Guatemala, and he ran the facility, had a little house and production facility. I went down and I actually taught them how to cut fabric and uh, uh, stuff like that, how to do pattern work and how to treat patterns and so on. So I kind of earned my keep, if you will. Um, but we had to go source fabric, and it was really interesting um, – these, you know, these were people's homes that they would weave, and and the fabric was 36 inches wide. I said, "Why is that?" He said, "Well, that's as far as a woman could throw the shuttle and catch it on the <laughs> other side." 
and uh, watching them, they would dye the yarn, and then they would set the yarn, and they would show, okay, this is going to be a person, this will be a dog or an animal, and it was really, really neat, very, very, uh, really neat to learn. So, Panajachel um, is at the waterline, and kind of the surrounding area is a town called Solola, and you have to kind of go down this windy it's paved, but I would say a kind of a grade B paved job. Kind of just contoured down from Solola to Panahachel. And at the time, they were having problems with banditos. There were a couple other towns on the, uh, in that area, but they're like, don't go there and so on. And the guy uh, who rented us motorcycles. So we had to go do uh, some sourcing, trying to find fabric. And we're doing it all on motorcycle. And we had, uh, these, uh, these were big bikes in Guatemala. Um, it was an, a DT-175 two-stroke, and uh, we rented a XT-185 four-stroke. So those are big bikes in Latin America, mainly because of taxation and so on. Like a 150 is big. You see a 1200 GS. That's a monster motorcycle. Yeah, it might as well uh, be a limousine, limousine there. And the reason they're expensive is their import duties are so high. Um, I mean, up to 90%. I remember talking to Ron Ayers, who was uh, running tours. He was based in Brazil. I'm like, so what? You know, what's a GS costing you? About 20, and this is ten plus years ago. They're twenty some thousand dollars for what we were paying close to fifteen for. It was twenty three, I think, um, just because of import tax and stuff like that. So anyway, we're coming back, and the rule of thumb, kind of all over Latin America, unless you're in cities, you don't drive at night. And people are like, why? Well, it's this weird thing that I knew in Bolivia was uh, in Bolivia, people never drove with their headlights on. They'd use their parking lights, but they never drove their headlights on. People are like, why? Because it saves the battery. That was the theory. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're not using your battery. They don't use alternators down there. Uh, they do, but there's just this kind of weird thing. <laughs> at least at the time, I mean, and and when you'd come to something, you just flash your lights. You don't honk. You just kind of flash your lights at night if they're on, or you turn them on, kind of thing. So it was just kind of a theory. And like in Baja, you don't travel at night because cows migrate to the roads and stuff like that. But um, so we're coming back from doing all this. We spent a day out looking for fabric and got some leads and so on. And it's becoming dusk now. The road to go from Solola to Panajachel at the time, big military base. They were still having a lot of problems, uh, military guerrilla warfare going on. And uh, so there's a, 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 draw, a, a drawbridge, not a drawbridge, but the arm. Um, uh, what is that? Uh, like a railroad arm? Um, what do you call it's it? It's a crossing. Crossing. So they have one of those. And at a certain time of night, they close it because they want to close the road. They don't want people going up and down. They just want to just shut the road for the night, unless it's an absolute emergency. So we're right at the cross. We're right at the, at the, uh, at the, cro at the crossing, at the threshold, if you will. It's getting dark, and we're all looking around. We're going, are we going to do this? And uh, the, 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 the guys are like, well, you know, you've got to make a decision quick, because we're going to close the road. We're going to put the, the, the gate down, and it's done. And we're like, oh, man, I don't know, man, I want to go sleep in my bed, we got to get down, we got to do this. And uh, 
Yeah, and then the commandant's like, what's going on here? So the commander of the whole army base, and then you've got tanks and military vehicles and I don't know how many men and barracks and all that stuff, barbed wire, just like the traditional smaller military base. And he goes, look, he goes, I'll make you do. You can spend the night in my guest room. You, that's the safest place in Guatemala. You're surrounded by, you know, X amount of troops, all heavily armed. My wife, her boss and I, we look all at each other and went, nah, and we jumped on the bike and just took off. So my wife <laughs> is tucked behind me. I mean, literally as small as she can get. Her boss is, oh, maybe 10 feet in front of me. And we were going as fast as these little, uh, we were on, uh, I think we were on the DT-175. So these two strokes, we were just ringing them out. Out of the corner of my eye, I see three banditos running down the trail. It's like a straight down shot. And they got guns. You can see the guns that they're carrying. And uh, we're like, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Right, I pa- right as their foot hit, the, pa- hit the, uh, the tarmac, the pavement, I had passed. And we're like, woohoo, flicking them off, flicking them off. Go, go, go. We get into Panaha Channel, and it was as if it was the finish line. <laughs> we blow through, and people are like, yeah! Because they could see our two lights just going down, wiggling down the mountain as fast as possible. <laughs> so we get in. It was like this big, yeah, you made it. You're, guy, you're stupid, but you made it. And we're <laughs> like, yeah. So we go to return the bikes. The owner, who is this French guy, yelling at us in French, cussing at us. You could have, my bikes could have been stolen. Ah, and we're like, yeah, but we made it. And he's like, you did. That is cool. But la, 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 la. So <laughs> that was one of the, that was one of the funkiest things we, I've ever done on a bike and chased by. Wow. That's either. crazy. Yeah. That was pretty cool. <laughs> that's that was crazy. Cool, so. Live through it once, but don't really want to go back. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to do that again. So. That's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, it's been fun uh, talking about uh, motorcycles and in business with you. I appreciate you uh, oh, coming on and, and sharing that with us. That's awesome. Absolutely. Thanks for having us.